Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years. I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I'm always intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Victor from Enchain AI about their solution, his motivation, and also, I believe, one of the first cybersecurity Web3 vendors to beat RSA Sandbox 2023. Victor, please tell me about yourself and the company. First of all, thank you for inviting me here. So it's really great to be here to talk to you, to share our companies and all that. So we're Enchain AI. We're the guardians of Web3 Digital Asset. We are headquartered in San Francisco and now have office in four different states. So we are AI-powered cybersecurity company enhancing Web3 security, risk, and compliance strategies. So around four, five years ago, you had the motivation or an idea to start the company. And I'm wondering, like, what happened during this part of your time in your life? What motivated you to start the company? Actually, right before I started Enchain AI, right? Back in 2018, I was running the AI at Mendian. Actually, one of the interesting projects I did there is actually tracing WannaCry and Rocky ransomware's Bitcoin. And that's when I really realized that, hey, this problem is actually much bigger than just tracing the Bitcoin in blockchain and for our WannaCry and all that. We can solve a more fundamental problem in this emerging digital asset or cryptocurrency. And what intrigued me a lot is really that Back then, it's not called Web3, it's just the smart contract. But I can clearly see that it's very different than the UTXO layer, those Bitcoin layer. This is a Web3 layer that's sitting on top of them. And let's just think about it. The internet infrastructure and there are the application web app that are built on top of it. That becomes the cloud industry right now. So I see this is probably going to... In, back then, in Silicon Valley, also had the saying that software is eating the world. So in my perspective, I feel like the smart contract is going to eat the world. <laughs> Web3 world. So I laser focus on that. And back then, to be honest with you, like not a lot of VC see my vision. I mean, they're busy with other infrastructure problems, which is true in the cybersecurity. And we really pick a very niche space, but I think we are being trusted by quite a few high-profile customers in different sectors that are going to have to drill down a little bit better. But really, it's still a small market, I would say. And this is really a great honor for Enching AI to, to become the first Web3 security company to get on the ISA stage. I think it's really a historic moment for the company and also for the entire industry, not just the cybersecurity, but also the entire trillion dollar asset of the Web3 world. So you had a lot of friends and people you know in the investor community, but how did you know what the kind of validation you did that the customer will buy the solutions, that they actually mean the market for this? In fact, I think the biggest luxury we have in cybersecurity industry or the vendor is actually the value proposition is super clear. Everybody needs security. And the security problem in Web3 or the cryptocurrency or DeFi is actually even a bigger problem because thanks to its decentralized network fashion and also this smart contract layer that is being Emerging. So the very proposition is we basically solve two main problems, right? One is the cybersecurity problem, including smart contract auditing pen tests. You're making sure your private key is being stored properly and 
your smart contract that doesn't have vulnerabilities and all that. The other big problem is actually the compliance. As you guys know, cryptocurrency is being exploited or leveraged by the North Korea and all these APT group that some of them will have to fight with spectrum mandates and all that. So it's really this two key problems, the cybersecurity and compliance. And with Enchain AI, we develop a unified uh, platform to address the both problem at the same time. That's actually something I feel very proud of. So basically, we just get back from the FATF FATF conference. That's a global regulator kind of conference to discuss the anti-money laundry in Tokyo. So it's also great that the global regulators actually now consider this a big problem, especially the web stories and cryptocurrency is being leveraged by the back actors and sanctioned countries. One of the data they say is over a billion dollars being held in the back actors and all that. So that would be a big problem because that may impact the financial stabilities of this entire Web3 or cryptocurrency ecosystem. But also, you guys already seen what happened a couple months ago. So all the financial system stability could be actually being also impacted by the cryptocurrency. But our point is we have technology ways to actually making sure that it's growing healthy other than, hey, we should ban it. So that's also our mission here, right? So set up the right technology in place to make sure that the Web3 digital asset will grow in a very healthy way, other than being leveraged by the bad actor. So after you validate it, and it looks like you did a lot of validation and you knew it's going to be working, what was the next step? Raise money, hire people. The company started in 2018 and quickly we raised seed round and then we went through the Berkeley blockchain accelerator and then we raised another round and then we actually go the series A one and a half years ago. But after we won the RSA, we do have a lot of VC finally they see the value. They're very curious. I would say they're very curious. I think I have some learning to do here and like much education and all that. It's definitely we're solving the essential problem in this trillion dollar digital asset. And last year alone that four billion dollars being hacked. That's it's a big problem. And not that many people realize even if you realize it, it's actually a very different problem than just the cybersecurity or cloud security, just all thanks to this entire decentralized nature of this digital asset or this infrastructure. So this is an interesting part. You raised money and sounds like it was okay, but now you need to hire people and you need to hire people that are going to be adapted to your culture. And I'm sure you not just want smart people, you want people that you know are going to be working with you for a long time. What is the secret or what was your approach to create a culture and find people that are going to be similar to your culture? I would say it's a founder, right? Startup founder. The most important thing is actually what you just mentioned, the culture, okay? It's nothing else, really. It's building a great startup. It's not just about idea, but about the team of the A players that you can gather together to achieve the mission. In Silicon Valley, there's maybe, what, 10 other people like me have the right idea, right? But at the end, not that many people are willing to commit to this mission and then really gather the team and spend your time and resource into that to achieve the goal. So the culture we have since day one is what we call the A players, the A player culture, right? You have to be very disciplined and very goal-oriented. And then you have to be constantly learning. We have those cultural discipline. And when you interview with us, you're going to realize we actually embed some of the questions in the hiring process. Not directly, but very indirectly, subtly, we'll ask you some questions that actually basically checking if you are the culture fit. So it's actually not about hiring off-the-shelf talent in this industry because you won't be able to find, okay, a smart culture expert. You won't be able to find, oh, this guy that has, what, five-year experience in, in pen testing, cryptography, infrastructure, and all that, right? So you won't be able to find it. 
you may be able to find a very talented young professional or like a UC Berkeley recent grad, right? That has the right foundation of the knowledge, but also has culture fit. They should be willing to learn. And something that we did pretty well in the company is we developed this kind of a mentorship program to really help you get ramped up to the Web3 world and the smart contract world. And the good news for the entire community is we've been doing that in the past four years. So we get new hire, we have the entire set of knowledge and all that to wrap you up to the speed. But we just open it up into an on-chain university. So it's university to on-chain to AI. We start putting some of the internal training and even the lecture that we gave at UC Berkeley and Harvard. So we turn it into a training program. I think it's the time to actually educate more people to the space. So I think it, it's going to grow into a, a much bigger job market in this Web3 securities and all that. But right now, it's in cybersecurity itself, I think we are short for about what, 600,000 tailored staffing issues in the cybersecurity. And Web3 and cryptocurrency is even a bigger problem. If you post a job description out there, I don't think you're going to hire any qualified talents out there. It's just because they don't have enough resource to learn. Let's yeah. go a bit deeper because you brought something very interesting. You're looking for a very disciplined and type A players. Now, type A players probably have a lot of opinion and it's good. So if you put a bunch of A players in your room, are you going to create a team atmosphere or everybody going to get a drive because they're trying to show that they're the smarter person in the room? So I would say it's also a big responsibility for leaders and me and my co-founder Ben. Okay, let's put it this way. I'm a hardcore machine learning scientist and all that. Picture this, running a company like a machine learning model, like a decision tree or random forest. You have all these great individuals that are like those different trees in the ensemble model. And then as a leader here, first of all, we have to making sure that everybody can voice out the opinion. But at the end, you have to let them know also there's a waiting process there. Everybody has the freedom to express the opinions and all that. By the end, there's a waiting factor there. Some of them, yeah, of course, you're highly opinionated, but are you really the right person? How many years are you in the industry and how many customers related questions have like a session that you have to go through? Really, how much you really understand the customer's pain points and all that? So I think we would do it a very open fashion in the company. We're going to communicate with them, but it's really important to open up the conversation for everyone. But like you Smart people are very highly opinionated. You want to make sure that they voice out their opinion. That's super important. And also give them the feedback of why I think this doesn't work. And another point I want to mention, as you may know, Enchain AI hire all these, I would say, the Gen Zs and millennials. <laughs> very young professional, right? I realized that managing those younger generation is actually quite different than my generation, I would say. You have to spend a lot more time motivating them. Like back then, when I just came to Silicon Valley as a data scientist, my manager asked me to do anything. I just do it. I never asked questions. Like, oh, yeah, why should I change this model other than the other one? But I don't know which one is good or bad. In the beginning of my career, I tend to follow. But then we quickly realized that with Gen Z, this entire younger generation, you not just to tell them what to do, you also have to explain why you should do that. And you have to sincerely explain them to making sure that, well, they know where the next step is going to be. It's a generation that start with the, what uh, like mobile phones and iPads and all that back then when I was in college I still have to go to the library to read the books on the shelves and all that but the generation they have grown up with this massive accessible information and it's a different generation and the management style we have to adapt to it one thing nice about startup is we are small and nimble enough to adapt to those and yeah the hiring the culture internal the training and the management it's a lot of work but it's fun 
is there a secret to stay on top of tasks? Because as a CEO, you have a lot of stuff to do. You have the sales, you have technical people, you have the mentoring of the people. What's your secret or what's your approach? As related to that first question, I really like hire the best that you can get and trust them with the task, help them to grow. And then at the same time, they will kind of start realizing, hey, I'm a key part of the company. But delegate, delegate a lot of my work to them. Like for example, hiring the right marketing guy who can take care of all these different marketing tasks. And then as a CEO, I focus on the technology roadmap. Like what kind of product we should be, what kind of customer sector we should service. Because this space, you know what, it's different than this 6,000 company industry, the, the cybersecurity. We only have that many sectors that we can service. So you have to prioritize. And the market changes super rapidly. It's not on the Wall Street company. I have $100 million budget to buy cloud security, firewall, email. No, in Web3 and cryptocurrency, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, so I are the best people, hire the A player, making sure they feel the responsibility and then to kind of keep delegate them to tasks, right? To offload a lot of my work so I can focus on the big picture and the direction and building the culture for the company. Victor, as a technical CEO, it's probably different. Like who is doing the selling? Because usually the CEO is the first and the main salesperson. I mean, it's the same in Silicon Valley, right? In, in the startup world, the founder has to be the sales, right? Although, as you can tell, I'm definitely not the best sales in the world, but I'm good at explaining technology concepts and all that. Another thing is like crypto, the web story is such a small world. If you are good, the community is going to know you. It's just simple like that. So a lot of our customers are actually just referral. It's just, they tell the hey, I really like Enchant because we use this for a year or two years. We love it. You should try. Oh, by the way, I learned a lot in the sales process. The past, what, 15, 20 years in the Silicon Valley, I actually never get into that sales process. And it's actually an entire systematic approach. You have the SDR and then you have this BDR. And then it's an entire pipeline, how you connect it with marketing team that create MQL, SQL. There's all these little chunks that build out this entire sales pipeline. I learned a lot from that process, actually. And a lot of the sales, like especially the high-profile sales, for example, we have customers like the, some of the big names in the U.S. government. I have to be involved. I want to make sure that we are servicing, we're building the right technology for the customers. And also, sometimes they know roughly what they want, but really probably there's a better way to meet their goal. So... I think when we talk to them, we feel like there's a lot of those aha moments that when we spend time with the customer, they feel like, oh, I actually don't need a stronger horse. I need a car. That kind of moment. It's a good explanation. <laughs> you know what? They don't know that car is already there. They say, oh, okay, I'm going to run faster. I want a bigger horse. So those, you have to understand the technology roadmap and understand what is possible and what is not possible. And then figure out, in the end, it's all about solving the customer's um, pain points and all. This is another nice thing about cybersecurity, right? You never see a customer say, hey, I don't need cybersecurity. I don't care about compliance. But if you sell like those, a lot of those B2C, like those apps, it's crazy. Like now, a lot of people are building the chat GPT for some weird niche market to explain why they need that. But our job in this space for security and compliance is a lot easier to kind of explain that very proposition. If you can go back, four, five years ago, before you started the journey, would you do something differently? Fundamentally, no, but tactically, yes. So I'm willing to actually spend more time with customers to really listen. I got a PhD in computer science. I really deep down in technology and 
I've been doing pretty well as a data scientist in cybersecurity. A lot of machine learning I built is still running out there. So I mean, that Mendes and FireEye. But really, I didn't realize that spend time with the customers and really understand their pain point is that important. It turns out that's actually, I would say, the most important thing that the startup founder need to do. So if I went back to five years ago, restart this whole thing, I would spend a lot more time. If I ask you, what would you recommend to other founders that start their own business? Or is it going to be spending time with the customer or something else? Focus on the problem, not the technology. This is an advice for technology founders like me. I have a lot of friends in the Bay Area to a lot of the startup fail. You won't see it because the CNN or CNBC will never feature them. <laughs> so it's a survival bias, right? But a lot of startup fail. I got to talk to them. I learned a lot more from those failed startup men from like Facebook, Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. They are just the very rare, like an idol out there. So if you keep learning from them, you may get into this overfitting problem. There's a much bigger spectrum out there that, whoa, there's so many different ways to fail. You will be surprised. But going to be successful, there's only like a few main reasons. You have to build a product, a great product that really addresses the pain point. You have to be able to hire great cultures and build a great team with a great company cultures. But there's a thousand other stuff that may pull the company south. Yeah, focus on the problems, not the technology. Let's touch base on the failure. I call it the dark side. So it's part of the podcast where we talk about stuff that didn't work. Because as you mentioned, a lot of the stuff didn't work as we expected, but we can learn from this. So maybe you can share some dark moments, bad moments in your journey that you learn from them. Of course, don't disclose any PII information, but tell us like, some things that didn't work with the customer, maybe with the VC, that was a learning opportunity for you, or just maybe didn't work for you and it was a bad experience. Yeah, I would say startup, you start with a hypothesis. You think, oh, I may have this billion dollar idea to build our product to solve this problem. But turns out that the product you launch may fail because your hypothesis may be wrong. So it's very important to have that kind of feedback loop the entire process. So for example, we take this product development very agilely. So we will launch product out there. This is called the Silicon Valley. This is called the MVP, the minimal viable product kind of approach, right? a lean start approach. So you see this opportunity in the market, you form a hypothesis, you put engineers to build this prototype or MVP, and then to start rolling out to the market and see what's the feedback. And in fact, yeah, we have a lot of failed products back then, a lot. So one of the things that I feel very bad is actually the one we call it crypto NT. You probably won't find it because it just killed the domain name. But we're trying to build a cryptocurrency kind of infographics website. There's so much information out there in the crypto world. It comes from the blockchain events or smart contract calls or all the news. We come up with a machine learning model and using NLP and different anomaly detection we developed that actually at the end turns into a very nice UI UX that show the tiles of all these different insights we call the inside tiles in the website. And that it basically looks like it's a beautiful product. Okay. We launched it for three months, but turns out that the crypto market people, they don't care. A lot of those crypto guys, they just want to speculate. They just want to do trading like that. They don't have time to read all these deep market insight from vendors. Well, then that's a hypothesis. We start with a hypothesis and then we build a beautiful product. You launch and you feel that it's not going to work because this exact market doesn't need technology like that, a product like that. But 
Also, another thing that I think you need to learn from the dark side, and this is the nice thing about the founder is really quickly, we realize that the exact product is not going to work, but the infrastructure, the machine learning model, the NLP, all this fundamental layer stuff we built right, for this product actually can be reused in different products. So now if you go to the CISO, our blockchain investigation platform, you may still see some of the components that we took from that crypto NT, especially those NLP stuff, the clustering and, and the UX exercise we go through. This is the nice thing about the startup is really, we are not like those big company. We are nimble, we're agile, and we are solving a business problem. Like this year's Web3, so it's really a hypothesis we form, but this one is, I think is a lot more profound than just building another analytic tool. So we focus on the workflow, like this exact problem that Web3 solved. We focus on very good metrics, MTTD and MTTR, mean time to detect and to remediate in the Web3 world. And turns out that it was shocking to us when we pull out all these numbers, right? In the Web3 world, uh, in those top 20 attacks that we analyzed, it's $4 billion of hack is a big problem. On average, each hack will cost you $200 million. And the MTTD is about seven days. And the MTTR is about 32 days. Isn't that crazy that compared to the cybersecurity, that should be like hours, like less than five hours. If Google went down, they would be in trouble, right? But I mean, MTTD is 70 days, MTTR is about 32 days. You're talking about weeks and months in the current Web3 security. That's a big problem. So we come up with Web3 soft to analyze all these different components in this entire process. That we're following the NIST cybersecurity framework, where the first company that systematically bring in the best practice from the cybersecurity, from those 6,000 companies, I said, that already knew but we bring that a systematic approach to the Web3 world that I think we're already getting quite a lot of good feedback already. One of the design partners that we're about to announce, they are like, oh, hey, Victor and Philip, this is something we've been struggling. And then we have to do it. We knew it's a problem and we have to do it using our five engineers. We have to do it because this problem is so big. It's talking about the security operation where you have a digital asset. You're running in a decentralized wild west and the hacker can exploit your smart country and wire all the money if you have vulnerability. Then you have to focus on the operation side, but then they have ended up building their own. This is like a Goldman Sachs have to build their own AV antivirus right now. So this is where we step in. We come up with a product, the Web3 Sock, to solve the problem. As a CEO, as a person, you need to show that you know what you're doing. You need to be very comfortable. You need to be very confident. But you probably have your bad days as well. You're not a machine. We have probably failures. What do you personally do to get back to yourself when you have a bad days? Great question. So I exercise. I'm a master swimmer and I run. The mental health, the physical health of founder are super important also. It's not just for my entire team. I tell them that, hey, there's three things in your life that matter. The first one, is the health. And second one is your family. And third one is career. So one, two, three, right? You don't want to mix up the order. You might end up in some trouble if you shuffle the, the orders. Everybody has a bad day when we're really like being frustrating with deadlines or unhappy customers. First of all, right, we need to really focus on the problem, not the person. And also I would go out to do some exercise to let the brain take a break. So I go to swimming and actually it's a very good exercise. And also myself, I've been improving a lot. Like my coach is being very helpful for improving my skills. And also mentally, I feel a lot more refreshed. Or it's just that you have to distract your brain from that problem. Sometimes you will say, you think about the marginal, if you draw that out like a curve. If you keep hitting that thing, we're trying to always oh, spend more time and spend the next five hours solving this. 
it may become like it's going to hurt yourself, hurt the mentors and all that. So take a break or you get stuck there, take a break and then you will come back later. And then when you come back later, you may have some better ideas. You may bring a better attitude like, other than just, oh, I have to solve it in the next what five hours. If it's a big problem, you cannot solve it in, in a few hours. So I think that's, that's my secret. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it's you, you actually bring an interesting point. When you're going swimming, the phone doesn't work in a pool. So nobody can call you and interrupt you in your activity. <laughs> they actually call. My phone will ring. <laughs> it will ring, but you can ignore it. You need to work with your body. And then you know that even you walk on at the exact moment, it's not going to help. So this is actually one tip, one lesson we learned from one of our VC. A lot of our VC, they have these founder sessions. So we bring more like successful founders to give us a lecture. And actually the first year when we being funded by that by one of the VC. They actually have this little founder gathering, so like a fireside chat. And this is actually the emotion management or whatever you're gonna call that is actually one of the big topics. I was surprised. I mean, this was five years ago. I was just getting to become a first-time founder running a company. And back then, I didn't know why they keep talking about that. But now, after one or two years into the job, I know that, wow, that's actually probably the most important thing I learned from our VC is actually to manage your mind and making sure it is a stressful job. Being a founder is not easy. It's super stressful. There's so many things out there that could, could go wrong, right? But you want to make sure that you're going to get the right culture and it's a team sport. You want to make sure that you're defining this culture and the atmosphere for everybody to innovate. And managing the mind is actually it's a super critical task for the founders. Great. Victor, thank you very much. Amazing episode. I was very, very happy to talk to you today. Good luck in the competition. And I'm sure we'll talk to you in the future as well. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the interview. So everybody's listening to us. Thank you very much. And please join us for the next episode.